There are two readings uh, this morning. The first comes from Luke chapter 13 and begins at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. The second reading is from Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant 
and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, Although I think a sermon like this is a hard one to listen to, and it's a hard one to preach, if I'm being honest. I'm going to be sharing about what abuse looks like and the effects on those who are abused. It's tempting to leave it all under the carpet, hidden away, but we can't do that. Unfortunately, the church has done that for too long, We've heard the objections that it doesn't happen in church, it doesn't happen here, but all that has done is to leave those who experience abuse further shamed and isolated, and it allows the sin to grow in darkness. We have an obligation to call it out, to bring it into the light and to say no more. So today we're gonna be lifting up the carpet and discussing the hidden sin of family violence. And later I'll even share with you some of those who have experienced abuse and what they want you to know. Uh, Last week, John did a great job of setting the scene. He talked about uh, the issue in Australia and in the church and what God has to say to those who experience abuse and those who choose to abuse others. And if you missed his sermon last week, uh, it's online and I'd recommend that you have a listen. So today we're gonna be digging a little deeper into what the situation looks like from the inside and what we can learn about how to live as people who are followers of Jesus. And so just to reiterate that if you need to step out and take a break, please do so. Uh, This is what we're gonna be looking at this morning, these questions. How does Jesus treat the vulnerable? What is abuse and what are the impacts of abuse and the roots of abuse? I just want to start off by explaining a couple of terms before I begin, though. Uh, When we talk about family violence, uh, this is the language that the National Framework and the Protection Act use. It means this. uh, Family violence means violent, threatening or other behaviour by a person that coerces or controls a member of the person's family or causes the family member to be fearful. And abuse and violence can be used interchangeably because the definition of violence is much broader than what we normally think of. We normally think about uh, physical violence when we think about violence. And so for that reason, I tend to use the word abuse because I think it better encapsulates what we mean. Uh, Secondly, as John said last week, the proportion of women being abused by men is significantly higher than the reverse, although there are women who choose to abuse. And so because of those statistics, um, from time to time, I may refer to those who choose to abuse as men and those who experience abuse as women, but I do recognise that this is not always the case. So with those preliminaries out of the way, I want to start looking at Jesus first and look about how he treats women and children. Because if there's one thing that I want you to hear today, 
one thing that you can take away from today is that Jesus doesn't treat people abusively, nor does he expect people to put up with abuse. Jesus is the model for how we should treat one another. If Jesus is our Lord and Saviour, he's the one whom we answer to and who we imitate, and he sets the framework to which we need to listen and obey. And in fact, it's as we look to God's word, as we contemplate Jesus, Jesus shows us who God is, and he shows us what a human being should be. So as we look at Jesus, we will see all the more clearly just how far off the mark abuse is. So how does Jesus treat the vulnerable? Well, Jesus was remarkable in his day for welcoming women and children and for treating them with kindness and respect and using his power to care for those who are particularly in his society, powerless. There is no objectification, no impropriety or marginalization of women when it comes to Jesus. And in Luke 13, as we heard read earlier, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and he stops and he notices this woman who is crippled and bent over. A woman who would have been disregarded and ignored. She's bent over, both in body and in spirit. She looks downwards. She carries the pain and the shame in her disfigured body, never allowing herself to even hope for pity or let alone restoration. She's just trying to get through life as best she can to survive each day. But Jesus sees her. Jesus takes the initiative to heal her and to set her free so that she can be restored and made whole. Yet the synagogue ruler is indignant, we read. He immediately dismisses the woman and says, you should have got yourself healed on another day other than the Sabbath. Come and be healed on some other day like she was intentionally undermining the Jewish laws and being a threat to public order. All she did was be there. The ruler blames her, trivializes her healing, denies her worth and objectifies her to point score with Jesus. This woman is nothing to him but an opportunity to play to the crowd and quash Jesus's popularity. And Jesus will have none of that. He calls out the hypocrisy. Jesus uses a lesser to a greater example. He says, if you would take care of your animals on the Sabbath, how much more should this precious woman who has been oppressed for 18 long years should be set free? The Sabbath is the perfect time for liberating those who have been bound and rejected and burdened. And Jesus has a laser sharp focus for showing compassion to those who have been disenfranchised, abused and oppressed. This is how God in the flesh thinks about us. His concern is to make people whole again. Again and again, the way Jesus treated women shocked the religious leaders, the crowds and even his disciples. But Jesus was modeling how God sees the vulnerable, particularly women. 
the Samaritan woman, the woman with bleeding, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene. There are so many examples of Jesus speaking to women with respect, honoring them, celebrating their faith, restoring them from shame and exclusion. Not being concerned that they might taint him in some way. He doesn't denigrate them or see them as less spiritual or as a threat. Women and children aren't afraid for their safety with Jesus. They flock to him instead. And when women question Jesus, he doesn't silence or rebuke them. He patiently answers their questions. Jesus models how men should treat women. And the contrast between Jesus and those who disregard women or others who are vulnerable, the way that those who choose to abuse act, it's crystal clear. It is not the way of Jesus. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. So how did we get so far from treating women the way that Jesus does? And how can we have anything to say or to offer to the wider community about how to love God and how to treat others when our own home is in disarray? As the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so with this series, we want to bring the sin of abuse into the light. Abuse is a hard thing to sometimes recognize and define because of its insidious nature. And what might look like an innocent jibe or a a moment of impulse on the face of it might actually be a whole lot of subtle layers of dominating and controlling a person over many years. So how can we know the difference? What is abuse? Well, the next slide uh, shows a range of behaviors that can be identified as abuse or violence. They are physical, sexual, spiritual, financial, social, psychological, technology-based, verbal, and emotional abuse. One survivor described their experience like this. It was so subtle that I didn't see that it was happening. I became hypervigilant to any change in his mood and was constantly strategizing and surviving day to day. I thought it was normal because that's all I knew. My time, my energy, everything was monopolized by him and his needs. And I felt like I was either his mother or a child. There was never any mutuality and the children and I were constantly walking on eggshells. And after decades of this, I had discarded any hobbies or ambitions or hopes or opinions. I had scooped out everything of myself that got in the way and I was barely existing. With family violence, the boundaries between love and harm have been breached. And for the person who experiences abuse, their understanding of their sense of self, of safety, of other people, 
and even of God have been eroded. Uh, we can see this in the Netflix miniseries Made, uh, which was inspired by Stephanie Land's memoir of the same name. It tells her story of being a young mother trying to escape an abusive relationship. And she cleans houses to get by and she writes about her experiences and the people that she encounters. There's a scene where the young woman, Alex, is in a women's shelter and she's talking with another woman there named Danielle. And Alex says to Danielle, I shouldn't have left, he's a great dad. And Danielle says, you're here because he abused you. But Alex replies, he didn't abuse me, he punched a wall beside my head and I didn't do anything about it and I didn't file a report and I didn't call the cops. And Danielle says, punching a wall next to you is emotional abuse. Before they bite, they bark. Before they hit you, they hit near you. Next time, it was going to be your face, you know that. And Danielle shows the, star, the scar from her strangulation. And she says, you see that? You think it started out like that? You think on our first date, he was all past the salt, someday I'm gonna strangle you, girl. No, it grows like mold. I'm sorry that this is confronting, but that's the way it is. Too often we only think about the extreme end of abuse, but what we need to understand is that like mold, it grows. We might think uh, someone only has to abuse me once and then I'm out the door. We might think that only certain people are abused, but it's much more complicated than that. Just like a frog in boiling water, we know how to avoid people who speak outright lies or attack us, but when it is slow and subtle, when it comes from someone that you trust and someone who you think has your best interests in mind, then as the temperature increases, we don't recognize that what we're experiencing is abuse. And those who choose to abuse are not always these rage-filled monsters that we might think. And in fact, it would be clearer for victims if it were so. But they can be charming, thoughtful, sensitive and loving. They can be people active in the church or in ministry. The language used to describe this these days is coercive control. And you might have heard of that in the news. It's a pattern of domination that includes tactics to isolate, degrade, exploit and control. Monitoring your phones and your accounts, limiting access to money, isolating you from support systems, criticizing you, pressuring you and making threats, belittling you in front of others, making jealous accusations. All these tactics are used to slowly and subtly control someone. And gaslighting is a part of this. The term gaslighting comes from a movie where there's an heiress who marries a man and he gradually convinces her that she's crazy by slowly uh, dimming the gaslights um, and denying that. It basically means psychological manipulation with the intent that someone loses their sense of reality and doubts themselves. The person gaslighting may say, it's all in your head. They may completely deny that they said or did something. They may try to convince you that it's all your fault and you start to second guess yourself and you end up trusting the person doing the gaslighting more than you trust yourself. 
It's not something that happens to just quote-unquote weak or uneducated people. In fact, the same tactics are used in war. Albert Biderman, a social scientist, he studied the American POWs in the North Korean camps, and he found that the same tactics were used. They were isolated, exhausted, degraded. They had punishments and rewards alternated uh, unpredictably. They were made to give in to trivial demands, and the results were the same. Anxiety, depression, dependency, and dread. And what's interesting is that Biderman noted that actual violence was not a particularly effective way to gain compliance, but the fear of violence from vague threats was much more effective. And unfortunately, I know people who have been physically abused and they have been adamant that the psychological and emotional abuse that they received uh, does more damage. The bruises heal but constantly being told that you're worthless or crazy or sinful is hard to heal from. And in fact, in a 2014 survey of UK victims, 94% said that coercive control was the worst part of what they suffered. 94%. And if you're still not convinced, hopefully I just need to say the names Doreen Langham, Hannah Clark or Pretty Ready for you to recognise that coercive control is not harmless. All these women in Australia died at the hands of their ex-partners after trying to leave a relationship of coercive control. So what is the impact of abuse? Well, just as the, the types of abuse are many and varied, as we saw in the earlier slide, so the impacts on are on those who experience abuse. There are physical, financial, emotional, spiritual impacts, and so on. And in general, it takes a woman seven times to try to leave before she's actually successful. And as we know, leaving can be the most dangerous time for a woman. She may not have any money of her own if she hasn't been employed for a long time or she may have been saddled with debt unknowingly by her perpetrator. And suddenly she has to navigate housing services and Centrelink and banks and Medicare and the police and the court system. And there are the realities of stalking, threats and injury and even death. We know that every week one woman is murdered by a former or current partner. There are the fears of what will happen to their children and even fears about what will happen to the one who is abusing them. There is trauma-related health conditions. It may be hard to make decisions or to trust people. So when you add all this up, it's not hard to see why domestic and family violence is the leading driver of homelessness for women and why it is such a major problem. In James chapter 1, verse 27, we read, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is a whole church mandate, that we look after those who are most vulnerable in our community. And as a community of believers, it's going to cost us to care for such people. 
So are we willing to bear such a cost? As followers of Jesus, we're called to act on the behalf of the hurt and the oppressed, to bring life, truth, and restoration. So why do they do it? What are the roots of abuse? Well, I've spent time with women who invest huge amounts of energy trying to work out why he treats them the way that he does. Like there's a hidden key that if you just find it and unlock it, then he will return to the wonderful person that she fell in love with. They think if I can just get him to to see, if he'll get it, and then things will get better. And they'll rationalize that he, he doesn't mean it, that they may have misinterpreted him, that it's probably their fault for being too sensitive or too lazy or, or too judgmental. But it's not a matter of them at all. It's him, it's the one who chooses to abuse. And the short answer for why they do it is because they can. Because they can. And there are many complexities, of course, that are entangled in the mix. There's cultural and family upbringing, there's mental health, there's addictions, there's religious interpretations, there's all sorts of secondary things. But the simple fact is that all of us make choices every day with all of that mess in our lives. We know that some cultures have stricter gender hierarchies and that this even may be a part of your church experience. We know that violence may have been used as discipline or there may have been very delineated roles for men, women and children in your cultural upbringing. And even if you've grown up experiencing abuse yourself, it's no excuse for things to stay the same, but it's a reason to change because you know how bad it is. And so I think all of us need to take our upbringing and our culture and our faith heritage to God's word and to check it with what he says. Saying no to abuse isn't a Western idea or an Asian idea or whatever culture, it's God's idea, God's desire for all people made in the image of God himself is to live lives that are safe, free and where people are able to flourish. As women and men, we model ourselves on the Lord Jesus who as we read in Mark chapter 10, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we serve others generously, but we aren't subservient. We are strong, but we're not domineering. We are sacrificial, but we aren't passive and we can escape danger. We are forgiving, but we don't overlook evil. Jess Hill, who has researched why abusers abuse for her book and uh, her SBS series as well, See What You Made Me Do. She says that for those who choose to abuse, there seems to be a, a mesh of patriarchal entitlement, shame, feeling like they're powerless, And so they use violence to regain that feeling of power. And Jess says that it's in the moments before a man takes control, he can feel at his most vulnerable and powerless. 
just milliseconds before feeling the flush of power and pride that comes from reinstating dominance. So those who choose to abuse are doing so to latch onto power and control to make themselves better, feel better for a brief moment. And as John mentioned last week from Mark 7, the problem is the heart. It's out of a person's heart that such things come. How we treat those who are vulnerable shows who we are and who we worship. Author Darby Strickland wrote a book called Is It Abuse? And she puts it like this. Oppressors see themselves as the center of their world. Their hearts say, I was created to be worshiped, not to worship. So the problem of abuse springs out of a heart that dethrones God and replaces it with self. The exploitation and abuse of someone tells about the person who chooses to abuse, not the person who is abused. That is what the Bible teaches. And so how we respond to those who are vulnerable around us exposes who we are, not them. This is true for how we treat our elderly parents, how we treat vulnerable children, how we treat those with disabilities or language barriers, or how we treat people who are younger to us or people who trust us. What comes out of us is there all the time. And so the truth is that people abuse because people choose to abuse. It comes from the heart. And I just think that it is heartbreaking because abuse degrades both the perpetrator and the victim. It reduces people who are made in God's image to acting and feeling less than human. And again, when we look to Jesus, I mean, Jesus was all powerful and he is superior to us. Yet he doesn't act like that. He lowers himself to raise us up. It's just starkly different. So our response to the vulnerable exposes who we are. Jesus cared for the vulnerable. They were safe with him. Jesus said to the Pharisees, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry but you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And unfortunately, as the church worldwide, we have not helped, but we've made matters worse. We've done this by asking to hear both sides of the story or by placing the burden of upholding the marriage on the person who has experienced abuse and insisting that they bear the burden of forgiveness and reconciliation. We've told women that they need to endure, that they must stay. And often we inflict secondary trauma to the one who's already drowning in guilt. Or worse, through misaction and bad counsel, we can expose victims to greater harm. And so this morning I wanna say, dear friends, if you are in a relationship as the one that I've described, Please know that God does not call you to endure abuse. The Bible is not calling you to endure it, and neither do we. 
the key message is that you do not have to endure abuse. And if you feel able to, you can leave the situation. So I'd like to finish with wondering about what hope we have and listening to those who have experienced abuse and learning from them. They obviously can't stand here today and tell you what they wish they could, but I wanted to allow them to have a chance to be heard. And so kind of like Patrick Swayze through Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, I'm gonna share some of the things that people wanted you to know. And I really wanna thank the courageous people that did get in touch with me. A lot of comments were around mistaking what's seen in public with what goes on in private. So just because it looks like a happy marriage on a Sunday, or the guy seems likable and godly and dedicated, doesn't mean that abuse is not occurring. And if we discover that people separate or divorce, we shouldn't be judging them and deciding for ourselves who's at fault. Someone described to me feeling like an outcast or a secondhand citizen and said that it was really hard going to church during separation and divorce. And it was also acknowledged that abuse can come from parents, siblings, grandparents and other close relationships and not just from marriages. Some people just wanted you to know that we're here. They said it drives me crazy when people talk about it like it's not here. Other comments were about the importance of having boundaries in relationships, that it isn't selfish or sinful to assert yourself and that being a good Christian doesn't mean having your needs, uh, doesn't mean never having your needs filled or being pressured to forgive or to maintain a relationship no matter what. Others talked about what is taught in Christian communities, that it's so important that we don't normalize abusive behavior in the church because kids grow up thinking that that's normal and that poor informed theology isn't harmless or neutral. And so we need to be very careful about what the Bible does and doesn't say so that scripture can't be misused. They urged churches to listen to the voices who are divorced on matters of marriage and to employ people who have lived experience so that pastoral advice is not given naively. Someone said they hate being treated like nothing matters other than ticking those boxes in terms of being told to, to reconcile, to forgive, that divorce is bad, that remarriage is adultery. And they said, please believe and support victims tangibly and actively. Be courageous to listen and to see. And lastly, others uh, who experience abuse wanted you to know that if you're experiencing abuse, you can heal, even though it takes time, that you are strong and that your life matters, that it is an exhausting process but that you can grow in strength and have a future with hope and healing and that life after abuse is possible. So where do we go from here? Well, as I said before, the way that we treat the vulnerable reflects who we are and who we worship. And we need to be a community where it is safe to share, where 
we're more focused on bringing sin to the light and healing to the hurting than in protecting reputation and power. This morning, we've confronted the ugly reality of abuse. But we've also looked at Jesus and seen how he displays the antithesis of abuse. The heart of abuse is on the love of power and the misuse of power. But Jesus shows the power of love in using his power to raise up the powerless and by laying down his power for our sake. So let me finish with these words from Rachel Den Hollander, who is a survivor of abuse and she's an advocate in the church. She says this about the cross. At the cross, God acts for others to overcome evil, to uphold justice, free the enslaved and restore creation. God himself perfectly identifies with the victim because he himself has willingly subjected himself to injustice. The cross is the ultimate repudiation of the idea that power is to be wielded for the benefit and pleasure of those who possess it. When we look to the cross, we can be confident that abuse is not God's will, that we don't need to put up with it, and that we should not be inflicting it. So as a church, let's be committed to using our power, like Jesus, to love and to help people to flourish. Let me pray for that end. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who uses your great power to love and to care for us. Help us to take comfort in you and to help us to treat others in the same way as you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.